Welcome to the Scottish Watches Podcast. We're missing a Dave, we're also missing an interview guest it turns out. I was hoping to have a couple of fellas from the States online, one I've met in real life, one I've only spoken to virtually, but it is my pleasure to finally announce the Collective have joined Scottish Watches, or is it we have joined the Collective? <laughs> well, I'm looking over your shoulder and I'm seeing one of my favourite Ferengi, so I guess uh, this would be an appropriate time to make a board joke. I don't know. You got that one well done. Would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. So I'm Asher Rapkin. I'm one of the co-founders of Collective Virology. Not joining us today is my partner in crime, Gabe Riley, but that's okay. We can just make fun of him since he's not here. Same with Dave. Perfect. First thing we like to do on the show is get the wrist check out of the way. You're the guest of honour, so you can take the floor. Sure. So I'm actually wearing um, one of my most commonly worn, most beloved watches. Uh, this is uh, an Alanga Nzone uh, Odysseus in steel. I bought this watch um, the day it came out. I put in my order for it. Um, I had been hearing rumors of this thing for, gosh, I don't know, years before it came out. I think I annoyed absolutely everybody I possibly could. And I managed to make it under the line for when you were able to qualify it by just having bought anything from Longa. So I had previously bought the absolute cheapest watch that I possibly could, and I lucked out at the time. That's all I needed. So here it is on my wrist. Wow. It's even been dented and scratched, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a damn fine watch, man. I remember an interesting story about when that watch was coming out. It was the early days of Scottish watches and we were a little bit more close to the wind with what we got up to. <laughs> and somebody sent me some pre-release pictures. Now, we hadn't signed an embargo, we don't break embargoes, but everyone was starting to leak these and I thought, what do we do with this information? So it just so happened that we had a child's drawing of the Odysseus that ended up in our Instagram. I don't know how that happened, but it kept us out of legal wrangles and uh, everybody was happy, apart from the person that leaked images to me. But anyway, that's that. Uh, on my wrist today, I don't have it just now because I'm just back from the gym, but I was wearing my Tudor Black Shield Ceramic, the Fast Rider Ducati Edition, which is the black and red on an aftermarket eBay rally strap. I was actually trying to figure out what watch this would be and collection-wise, it's the second luxury piece that I bought and retained after my Batman. In total, it would be the fourth watch because the first one I got, I returned because it was knackered. The second one I sold. Third one was a Batman, which I've kept. And the fourth one is this Tudor. My one and only Tudor. And I absolutely love it. Still looks fantastic. Had it more than five years. And I'm just trying to rotate things around a little bit because there's that many watches coming in that the ones I actually own don't get the wrist presents that they should. That's kind of an oddball Tudor. I'm curious, why, why that one? At the very beginning of my watch journey, hobby-wise, before Scottish Watches, I liked the Batman. I gravitated towards that because blue is my colour. I've had blue mm. cars, blue in the Scottish Saltire, and the Tudor Fast Rider ceramic with the black and the red was the complete polar opposite. It wasn't shiny, luxurious 904L steel with blue. It was black matte ceramic and red. So I thought, if I'm going to have one watch, I should probably have the other. And it just so happens to turn out it matches with quite a lot of what I wear. I'm quite into wearing black, as you can see on the webcam just now, as listeners will obviously know. And it was such a departure. At that moment in time, I mean, it was a lot of money buying the Batman and keeping it at £6,500 UK and then getting the Tudor, which I got for an absolute steal. I think I paid £1,700 UK and it was brand new. Whoa. It was less than half price because the dealership I got the Batman from were selling Tudor, but were stopping selling Tudor. So they were kind of offloading everything at cost. And I thought, yeah, I'll go for that. It's completely different looking and... 
since I'm getting into watches, I've now got a collection that I've got the two complete mirror opposites. That's awesome. I, I never I never managed to pull the trigger on a fast rider, but I always particularly loved it. And and it always sits in that same bucket for me as the North flag of, of watches that Tudor had made that I wish I wish I had pulled the trigger on earlier. They do just take it to the edge and then push it over, but not really like it. And funnily enough, with introducing watches to friends and other people that I have associated with in the past. It's one of those watches that it gets a question of, tell me more about this. Uh And it's when you get closer to it, you can see things like, for instance, the concentric rings on the subdials. You don't see in pictures, really, unless it's a macro shot. But when you've got the watch in hand and you just tilt it slightly, the way it reacts to light is pretty incredible. And when I went to my first Baselworld in 2017... The, probably the week before I bought this watch because I'd seen it in the dealership the woman was trying to sell me both in the same day right I'm buying a Batman <laughs> and she's like do. yeah 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 get that get that one as well I'm thinking no that'd be like buying a Ferrari and a Lamborghini in the same day you want to get the benefit of your purchase and then space it out a little bit so I bought that went to Basel World while I was there Again, been a member of the public, not press. I didn't have the access that I've been accustomed to over the last couple of years and I'm very fortunate to have. But I wandered into the Tudor booth, spoke to their, I think it was at the Asian Markets Retail and Training Manager or Director. And I said, I'm interested in buying this watch. And he spent 20 minutes telling me about the inner workings of it. It's not just a ceramic lump. There's actually a stainless steel inner cage that all the stuff is mounted to. Yeah. And that's how they can give it 150 metres of water resistance. Because ceramic isn't water resistant because it always changes shape when it's fired. So came back, bought it, tried to wangle some more money off it. They weren't wearing that at all. But, you know, half price, brand new with warranty. That'll do nicely. So, yeah, I agree with you, Tudor. They do some cool things. Perhaps not so much in the last year. They've been playing it a little bit safe with some of their releases and their changes, the Pelagus and, you know, the pros and things like that. But hopefully they'll get back to doing weird and wacky stuff shortly. I often wish that they would lean harder into those P-series watches that they did, you know, when they launched with the, P, the P-01. That is such, an, such a cool and risky move for them. And I feel like that watch, it, I mean, maybe I mean, maybe it did. Maybe there's a lot of people out there that love it and wear it, but I don't, I don't tend to see a lot of them out there. But it's one of the coolest, riskiest moves, you know, to reach not only that far back into the catalog, but that deep into like, you know, W for weird and in the filing closet. And I, I, I keep hoping that they don't get discouraged by that particular model kind of just, you know, sitting there. And that they continue to reach back and go further and further and further. The new Pelagos 39 is a really, really nice watch. But to your point, it is um, it is the average of everything that is good and therefore makes you kind of wonder, you know, what, what makes it distinct? Which isn't to say that it's a bad watch. It's a damn fine watch. Hell, I bought one. But it, it it's still, it's it's very much walking the middle line, you know? And maybe that's maybe that's what Tudor does. Maybe that's the move. I'm trying to think who was at the helm because it was before my time. And from memory and what I've pieced together, it would have been Davide Serato that ended up at Mont Blanc, now at HYT, who mm-hmm. kind of brought Tudor back. They di- From memory, they disappeared, especially from the American market, came back heavy and hard. But now they've settled in and they've got their feet under the desk. It seems to be quite pedestrian the latest releases and the iterations. I'm so far off the deep end. It's it's hard for me to be able to put on, you know, my hat from 15 years ago when I started when I started this thing. And frankly, I think 15 years ago I would have looked at a modern Tudor right now and idolized it as an absolutely phenomenal watch. So sometimes I think that it might have to do with, you know, the position that you're in is it from a collecting standpoint and looking back, what I want from Tudor is probably so esoteric and specific that it wouldn't be a mass market appeal. It wouldn't it wouldn't 
wouldn't sell, you know, the way that a Polygos 39 probably is. But now, you know, as as addicted as I am and and uh, obsessive as I am, it may not scratch the itch the way that I want it to. Yeah. But that's a me problem. <laughs> that's not a tutor problem. <laughs> I know they do listen to the show. Hi, tutor. Hi, tutor. <laughs> yeah, I learned that one when I emailed them about something and they commented on something that was in the show. So hello there. Love your watches. Send me some freebies. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about me trying to get some freebies from Tudor or even some loan pieces across to look at. We're here to talk about yourself. And I was hoping your cohort would be along for the ride, but he is not. He is otherwise indisposed. So we're just going to have to ask you to give us the deep dive on Asher, the history, the watches. 15 years ago, what happened? What changed your life? Oh, geez. Uh, well, 15 years ago, uh, I, I stopped being completely and utterly broke. So that helped. Is that when OnlyFans started? <laughs> My wife doesn't know. Uh, years ago, um, uh, yeah, I grew up in New York City, as did Gabe. We've known each other since we were 12 years old. And uh, we've, we've had a several, uh, I'd say, aligned obsessions. Um, I'll spare you this one, but but both Gabe and I grew up listening to, I don't know if this is a big thing in the UK, but uh, uh, jam bands. So we listened to a lot of Fish and the Grateful Dead and things like that. And Gabe is, in fact, I, I would argue, probably one of the largest fans of Blues Traveler around, if you remember them. He uh, he used to work for John Popper and Blues Traveler, and he, I think he's seen them over 50 or 60 times. When we say we're obsessive about live music, et cetera, like we very much, we very much are. And Watches... Um, was a, another shared obsession. You know, we were very good friends uh, all the way through high school and uh, middle school. And then in college, we separated, but uh, he went to a different school than I did. But the, one of the things that kept us connected were these shared obsessions of music, of watches, et cetera. And I remember coming to visit Gabe um, in San Francisco, where he lived. I was still living in New York at the time. And he had just bought a uh, Tag Heuer Aqua Racer. And for him, it was uh, it, it was his first really nice watch. And, you know, for me, um, I, I'd been interested in watches. You know, I, I bought a Scoggin uh, when I was in college and, and I wore that for years. It was, you know, I picked it not because I knew shit about watches, but just because I loved I loved the aesthetic of the watch. They are beautiful watches. Yeah, I've got one myself. My mom bought me. Yeah, they're, they're, they're phenomenal. And uh, but I remember picking up his Aqua Racer and it was the first time I'd ever held something like that. And like the feeling of the weight of it, the density, you know, it felt like something serious. And uh I uh, became instantaneously jealous of him. Um, and, you know, I decided at the time, and at the time I had negative assets, you know, so I wasn't going to go out and buy a thousand dollar watch, let alone, you know, anything more than that. But it really nestled itself in my brain. And uh, I started doing what everybody does. I went down a large uh, internet rabbit hole, you know, what am I, you know, what watch for me, et cetera. At the time I was working in television and I, I got a job uh, where I finally made a little bit of money. And the first thing I did was walk down the street um, in New York City to Tourneau and buy a pre-owned um, uh, Omega Seamaster. And that was my first really nice watch. What were you doing in television? So I used to do uh, something called integrated marketing um, for MTV and NBC and a network that no longer exists called Current TV. And basically what I would do, I'll give an example from like uh, the days of MTV. For the MTV Movie Awards, there would always be these little interstitials, for example, for advertisers, et cetera, and content like that. And uh, I would work uh, with the advertisers to create that and, and uh, build these interstitials and these, the, you know, everything from, you know, gags on stage all the way through to digital content. And um, I did that for about 10 years. Um, and that... Uh, that managed to drag me out of, um, you know, being a broke, uh, a broke post-collegiate graduate um, and led me to my first mistake in watch uh, collecting, which is to uh, to assume that everybody's going to tell you <laughs> everything you need to know about the watch you're going to buy. Because the first watch I bought, that Seamaster, um, I, I, I proudly purchased it. It was this beautiful uh, wave dial Bond Seamaster and I brought it to Gabe and I was like, look, man, 
this is great. And he's like, oh, really? Why'd you buy a quartz watch? And I was like, a what now? <laughs> hey, but you know what? That turned out to be a good thing. No. I, but hey, listen, it, it was just fine. It's an awesome watch. Uh, I just didn't know what the difference was. And I was like, what do you mean quartz? And he's like, well, let me explain that to you. And of course, you know, and, and immediately I was like, oh, oh. You mean this is going to be more accurate and I don't have to wind it? Well, if I, if I, had, ha- if I had known what I know now, I could have fought back. But right then I was just, I just felt like a complete schmuck. And uh, oh. uh, it, was my fir- it was my first experience of, you know, making sure you know what you're buying. And I was like, oh, no wonder this watch was $1,200. <laughs> so I was like, what a deal I got. <laughs> but anyway, you know, from there, um, I started uh, going down a much deeper rabbit hole. And, and that led me ultimately to where we are today with, uh, with this company that we founded um, coming up on four or five years now. Oh, okay. Around about the time Scottish Watches was born then. It must have been something in the water, man. Exactly. Tell us all about the collective, where it came from. Where did the sure. idea come from? Two guys that like watches decide to take on the world. And it's been meteoric. The rise, the companies that you've dealt with, worked with. Everybody knows who you are, apart from me. So fill me in. Oh, well, thank you. It started uh, as an idea that came out of an affinity group uh, that we, that both Gabe and I were part of. We are part of a collecting group um, that was based in the Bay Area. And uh, interestingly, now that we spent the first few minutes, um, you know, talking about Tudor, might as well go back to it. Tudor uh, approached us and said, hey, would you would you ever be interested in making a watch for your group? And this is well before Collective. And the first thought that went through Gabe in my head was, you know, oh, my God, pinch me. Like, that's a thing you can do. Who knew? And, um, you know, we didn't know anything about how to approach something like that. We just thought it was a really cool idea. Whenabouts was this? This was 2016, I think, or seven. Yeah, 16, because um, the watch delivered in, in 17. And uh, we went about it all the wrong way, which is like, we, you know, we, we were super excited. We crowdsourced opinions. And, you know, as Gabe uh, very much likes to say, um, a, a camel is a horse that's been designed by committee. And that's that's, you know, kind of where we ended up. But but we were able to we were able to to put together this project and make this watch for this affinity group. We made 70 of them. And uh, it was the most fun. It was the most fun that I'd had on a creative side project in years. And as soon as it was done, this, the group was like, well, what's next? We thought, oh, next? Thought this was it. So we did another piece with them. We did one with Nomos. And suddenly, as we started to do this, we saw two things. One, that, that these watches became a calling card for that particular group, and it really held people together. Because there's an incredible feeling of, you know, walking down the street and seeing somebody wearing this special, unique watch and knowing that that it was it was, uh, you know, a secret handshake of sorts for that community. And then there was the other side of it, which was being able to to step into a world that we, you know, obsessed over. So many of us, I think everyone I'm listening to this podcast, you know, can can empathize with that and starting to see the, the curtain be pulled back some on on how these watches are actually made. Of course, at the time, like I said, we did we didn't really know how to approach it. It was it was very much that spitballed idea of like, well, what what kind of a tutor would I want to make? Or if I was making a nomos, what would that look like? And you know, we we've since moved away from that kind of thinking, but but it led us, I think, to to the inspirational point. And around the time of the third one, um, which was when uh, my friend Rob Kaplan, who you've met from Topper Jewelers, um, he came to me and said, you know, hey, listen, would you ever want to work with me on a Seiko? Was, Hell yeah, I would. So we worked together on uh, the Topper Ninja, the SPB 107. And at that time, Gabe and I said, you know, I, I feel like there's there's something here. Like there's an idea for for a business, for for something that if, if we can just start to peel this apart. And, and that that's what ultimately led us to the idea of, of collective. And when we started it, you know, with our first watch, which was with Zenith, we didn't we didn't really think that this was going to be a business. It was something that we 
were doing because we really, you know, we, we were excited about it. And then what we began to learn over the course of several years is um, in order to do this the way that we wanted to do it, we needed to dedicate more and more and more time to it. And then suddenly you need to take a step back and say like, well, how do I do this in a way that stays true to the values that, that I have and that I want? How do I maintain and, and, and be a business that I want to be proud of, but also create this in a way that allows us to be self-sustaining? And that's ultimately what led us to where we are today. Yeah, uh, very similar with what's happened at Scottish Watches. It was a bit of fun, good for a laugh. And then before you know it, the amount of energy that goes in to yeah. research, plan, prepare, set up, record. I mean, we've been talking about doing a show for over a year. It's hard. I mean, for us, with every with every watch project that we do, and you know, we're about to talk about our sixth release. But with every project, uh, it's a it's an eighteen to twenty four month pro- uh, project. In fact, we have one coming out next year. Knock on wood, that's been in the works for more than two years. It just takes wow. a long time, you know. So, and that's uh, I, I think part of that is a function of how the the industry works, and part of it is it's that's just how long it takes to to come up with a good idea and and make it and, and bring it to a point where you're proud to release it. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. take a watch and make it red. You know, not that companies would ever do that kind of thing ever. No, certainly not. Well, who would no, do such a thing? Definitely not. Mm. Well, take us through then the early years with Collective Horology. You did the first watch. There was a thirst. People wanted more. Was it easier the second time round or did you just put more work in front of you because you wanted to climb further up the mountain? To be completely honest with you, I think the first one was dumb luck, uh, which is to say, you know, we we built both Gabe and I are marketers, you know, so so we approach a lot of what we do from the perspective of of um, marketing, creative and advertising creative. Uh, so we everything that we do is based off of a concept and a creative brief in the same way that we would approach if we were building an ad campaign, for for example. And, you know, when we started with Zen, with Zenith, the first piece, you know, we 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 approached a couple of brands and and, and folks were really nice, but they were also yeah, they were like, oh, okay, yeah, call me if you're still around in five years. See what happens. But Zenith, Zenith was interesting because they, I think, they were intrigued by the way that we were approaching creative and the way that we were we were handling the design. And bless their hearts for doing it because I don't know that we would exist without Zenith. Um, you know, to this day, I still send a thank you note to to the folks over at Zenith North America every time we release a watch because we wouldn't be around without them. And so we did 50 pieces and, and um, the first 50 members of Collective, you know, were people that were either folks that we knew or folks that were from our extended collecting community. And what became very clear to us very early on was that people were really excited about the idea of being able to not just find a community of folks that was open minded and kind and curious, but that they were also intrigued at this idea of joining a community that was linked together through these unique watches, just like we discovered early on with the affinity group that we were in. And as soon as we finished with Zenith, we were in this position of like, shit, what do we, <laughs> what do we do now? And at the same, and at that exact same moment, I had been having a conversation um, on Instagram uh, for my own, just for my own collecting uh, journey with a, a lovely man named Josh Shapiro. American watchmaker. And, um, you know, Josh said, well, why don't you come down to my studio so you can check it out? And I think he was, I think that was much more about him, you know, trying to find, you know, trying to uh, convert me into a customer. And I mean that in the best way. And uh, both Gabe and I went down and we, we fell in love with the guy. I mean, he's an incredible human. And, and he actually said, well, what if we did something together? And that mm-hmm. led us to our second collaboration, which uh, ended up setting up um, our business, actually, because we now have two collaborative lines. We have what we call the collective series, of which we produce in greater numbers. That's what Zenith started. 
And then we have the portfolio series, of which um, we produce in, in smaller numbers with independent watchmakers, which uh, we started with Josh. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about later on today, which is the third release in that series. And we slowly started uh, over time to just think through, okay, well, if we have these two series, how do we want to schedule this out? And who are we excited to work with? And that journey led us to asking a number of questions, like what makes a good partner? You know, in the beginning, I think we started by saying, who are the brands that we are intrigued by? And what we've learned is like, that's not, that's not necessarily the right question to ask for us. Instead, what we're more interested in now is who, who is going to be the most interesting to work with. And that's really changed uh, the course of our, of our uh, uh, company such that the brands that we work with, you know, if you look on the outside, seem a little schizophrenic, you know, we're Poe going back and forth, but really the, the thread that, that ties them all together is that they're all really open-minded, thoughtful, and creative folks that are willing to lean in to, to build something that's outside of the norm for them. And that's ultimately what's led us to here. Similar type of thing with the show. There's a lot of synergies here. We ask for people to email in with suggestions for guests, different brands, different makers. And we look at everything that comes in and we approach people, we speak to folks. And sometimes when I end up having a conversation by Zoom or by phone with a great brand, the person that's there just can't communicate properly. You know, they're so focused on what they do, they can't tell a story. And a podcast is all about bringing the story forward and letting it speak for itself. So you could have the greatest designer, whatever. If they can't bring that to the fore for my audio podcast, then it's never going to work. Just the same with you guys. If you're trying to work with someone that you really, really want it to work out and it is never going to, you just have to move on to the next. Yeah. And and look, I mean, I'd say 90% of the pitches that we put out in the world turn out to be, a, you know, great to meet you, but no thank you. And I... You know, to me, like honestly, that 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 doesn't hurt my feelings in any way because it's really great to know that in advance. The last thing I would want to do is go down, um, go down the path with a with a maker, and then find out that like it just it just doesn't work. Um, and and that's happened, you know, where we've we've started designing something and we're just like, oof, this is this is not going to work. And and I think as you know, you know, being a, a a business owner yourself, like that kind of stuff keeps you up at night. <laughs> You know, and uh, for us, especially for us where we, you know, we're releasing one or two watches a year, uh, every one of those is is so important to us um, in terms of, you know, just personal pride and, and, and asking ourselves too, like, does this watch really need to exist? Mm. Which I think is one of the biggest questions that surround not just limited editions, but also collaborations. You know, like, does this, is this a thing that ever actually had to exist? And if we can't look ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, this brings something really different or unique or special to the world, we really shouldn't be making it. You're just running rings around me here with my thought process. <laughs> and we don't plan our shows. We have got no bullet points, no list about what we're going to talk about today. But I'm thinking about the limited editions that Scottish watches have done. The first one was with Swatch. You can't really beat that. It was a customised design where people could get involved and they could help design their own watch based on a pattern that was produced using Scottish and Scottish watches-isms. Then we worked with Raketa because I own a number of Raketa watches. I love the history. We had them on the show a number of times. There was a good synergy. Christopher Ward, obviously one of the first interviews that I ever conducted for Scottish watches was with the guys at Christopher Ward back when we had 50 listeners. These synergies, reasons for being and we turn away, just like you guys, so many companies. We get emails at the moment, maybe five, ten a week from different brands, big, small, indifferent, saying, hey, it'd be good to do something. Mm -hmm. But 
we know as well as you do that some people out there, they just see pound notes or dollar signs and they're thinking, we've got a watch, we could slap a Scottish Watches logo on it, a Collective Horology logo on it, make a coin on it, yeehaw, that's not what we're about and it's definitely not what you guys are about. No, and uh, so much so in fact that we actually don't even put our logos on any of our watches. Um, we feel so strongly that the watch needs to stand on its own legs as an example of that manufacture. And that the variation should be something that even if the even though it is it is distinct from the main line, it should always be 100 percent recognizable as that watch. Um, you know, I, the only thing that I have with the collective logo on it is a, is a ball cap, you know, um, and I think that uh, we, we, we want to keep it that way. And it's funny, too, because when you I don't know if you've had this experience, but like when you when you sit down with a manufacturer and you tell them that you don't intend to put your logo on something, it's like you see their shoulders come down. <laughs> You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not buying branded merchandise from you. I actually want your watch to speak on its own. I don't think we've had our logo on any watches either. I think we've had perhaps SW on the front and we've had a Scottish flag on the front and we've had Scottish watches in words on the rear, but we've never dropped a big logo on the front because the same as you, if we're working with somebody, it's because they know what they're doing. They're the experts. We're just adding a little bit of spice on the end. Uh, but no, it's good to see that we're very aligned on certain things here. Now, without naming names, mm. some of these projects that perhaps never worked out, can you give us some examples of why things don't work out? I think sometimes it's personality. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a, a call that we were on last year where Gabe and I were uh, pitching a particular manufacturer and we were on a Zoom call with them. And, uh, you know, we were going through who we are, what we do, why we wanted to work with this manufacturer. And we could see on the Zoom that uh, that the two folks uh, from the manufacturer were on mute, but were talking to each other quite feverishly throughout the entire presentation. When we got to the end of the presentation, they came off mute and they said, so you guys, you guys make these make limited edition watches. Yeah. And they go, you understand that you're not the only people out there that do this, right? And I was so tempted to respond with, you know, you're not the only watchmaker out there too, right? Like it's, it's okay. And, and immediately it's like both, both Gabe and I were like, yeah, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> you know, so they're, 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 that's an extreme example, you know, but that, that was one. And then sometimes I think it, it's in good faith, but it just doesn't click. The thing about, about doing a collaboration is it takes a lot of time. And sometimes, you know, and I can think of another example where, you know, we pitched an idea, some of the initial renders came back and it just, it, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't working creatively. And you could see, you know, you could see that, that it wasn't going to get there because they weren't looking at the concept and the territory that we had provided. They were just thinking, well, what can I do to vary the design of this base model watch? And it really kept us up because we couldn't, we were, we were like, are we not communicating clearly enough? You know, are, are we not finding the right connection point? And sometimes it's just because it's just, it's just not going to work. And that doesn't mean that they're not an awesome brand or that they're, you know, uh, rude people far from it. They're, you know, it's really lovely humans. It just, it just wasn't clicking. And I think it, it, it behooves everybody in a situation, especially in collaboration where you really need to look at it as a creative partnership. And some manufacturers can't get past the idea of like, a, a you know, a group order. Um, some, on the other hand, uh, really love the idea of leading in. In fact, so much like when we worked with Martin and Felix at, at Urwork, where uh, Martin is such an incredibly creative guy that we had to literally tell him to stop because he was making changes to the design um, all the way up until and after the release of the watch. Um, you know, so it, it goes both ways. It does. And the point I'm trying to drive home in case anyone hasn't quite picked up on it, it's not an easy and quick process. 
And when you see a limited edition watch coming out, don't think it's been a box tick. As in somebody said, hey, do you want us just to change the colour of this and release it? It ain't that easy. The amount of back and forward I'm remembering with Christopher Ward to get the dial done, to put the Easter eggs on it. What are we going to do with the case back? Are we going to put in the Saltar logo? Are we going to do this, that and the other? Lots and lots of iterations. The first 80% is easy. It's the last 20% that takes up 80% of the time. That's the way it kind of works out. And some brands do come probably to yourselves they have done to us and it's almost like a licensing deal they want to stick batman on a lunchbox and that's definitely what we're not about i don't think you guys are either no and you know what's interesting about it too is it's not just a create it's not just about creative collaboration it's also about business partnership Uh, the thing about watches is i'm sure every single person on this call knows all you got to do is look at your credit card statement is they're extremely expensive which means that you're not only investing your time and your energy, you're also investing a not insignificant amount of capital in in bringing these watches to life. So the risk on it is not insignificant. And when we create something in partnership with someone, we all need to feel very confident that we're bringing this to market because the money that is associated with it is is consequential, you know, probably more so to, to collective than to some of these larger manufacturers. But, you know, nobody's playing a game here with that. And um, I think that's part of it because there's the there's the there's the pressure as a business to be able to make something that we're really proud of, which is the most important thing. And then there's the flip side of it of making sure that you feel very confident that there's an audience of people out there that are going to want it because, you know, whether you sell them or you don't, that invoice is going to come to you. And, um, you know, it's something that uh, we're keenly aware of, too. We don't we don't let that guide us, because if you do, you're going to end up, I think, creating, you know, you're only going to be making you know, the most commercially viable products that you can. And that's not necessarily the most interesting, but it is part of what, you know, what the risk factor is here. It's not like making a t-shirt, you know, these, these things are expensive. Yeah. And they have to be done in the one go. It's not like Seiko making a hundred thousand of something or a watch being 3D printed. Oh, we've only had four orders for this watch out of 50. We'll just make the four. No, they all have to be made. They all have to be paid for. Mm-hmm. There's a lot goes on behind the scenes that people, including myself, I didn't know any of this until day one working on our first collaborative watch. And that's why there are only one a year, perhaps two a year at a push. And as I say, five people a week are told, no, thank you. The good guys, yes, we've worked behind the scenes with them. There are many irons in the fire at the moment. One we've started to talk about, we're doing in collaboration with Juze Isotope. Again, he's been on the show a number of times. His watches are fantastic. Never had a bad thing to say about him. He's not somebody that's appeared out of nowhere. And that's the way we like to do things. So you told us about the first watch, Uh second watch. What was your thought? It was with H. Moser and Chi. Um, and it was uh, the brief for it was to create a, a truly rare travel watch. Both Gabe and I, um, before the pandemic, used to pogo around the world um, for our jobs. And, um, you know, we would literally like laugh because you'd sit in a, you know, airport lounge and it's like you'd see, you'd see the guy. And, and maybe this is distinct to the US, but like specifically in the airports in like Dallas, Fort Worth, there's like a uniform for, you know, air travelers where it's polo shirt tucked into chinos. You know, belt around the waist and a GM, a Rolex GMT. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I love Rolex GMTs. My kids, you know, both kids, uh, I have their birth watches are Rolex GMTs. But the thing is, you know, it's a, they're everywhere. And we were just like, God, man, we got to be able to find something a little bit more interesting than this. And um, I remember uh, seeing the uh, original Moser Diver, which came out, I think, 2018, 2019. There were 50 of them. 
wasn't announced. It was just kind of just kind of went out into the world. And uh, uh, the watch wasn't 100% for me, but I was totally into it because I love the Pioneer. The Pioneer without a bezel was too big for me. And, and this watch I found really, really intriguing. And when we approached Moser, they were very interested in working with us, but they were very, very uh, interested in working on a heritage piece. Um, and, you know, both Gabe and I and Moser went back and forth for almost four months trying to figure out how to make it work. And we just we just couldn't do it. And in March, right before lockdown, the last event that Collective did before lockdown was this dinner with Edward Melon and Mike Margolis, who was the U.S. distributor at the time. Um, and, my, and Mike and Edward and I sat down and we had a coffee and literally was like, OK, if we're going to do this, we're, you know, Gabe and I are going to tell them, like, this is what we want to do or like what we really want to do. Which And we tried early on. They said, no, like what we really wanted to do was a, a variation on that diver which we subsequently learned Edward was not a huge fan of the original one. Um, and we believe that that only that, that not only would have a place in the market, but that we could say something really unique with it. And I remember sitting there with him and him being like, you really think that this can work? You really think that there's creative territory in there? And we thought, yes. And the pitch that we brought back to him was at the time they just released the Streamliner. And the Streamliner was such a different, it's such a departure from the Pioneer, you know? And, the, and there were these two really distinct lines that they had of sports watches. And we were like, you know what we could do? We could bring about a, together a, a really special variation that married the design language of the two watches. And therefore, not only meet the brief of a very special travel or a very rare travel watch, but also serve as the bridge between Streamliner and Pioneer. And uh, together, they came back to us with the recommendation of like, hmm, why don't we borrow the handset and the Globalite indices from the uh, Streamliner and move that into the Pioneer and then build out from that concept um, technically into the watch. And subsequently now, actually, virtually every Pioneer now uses that design language. I'm not taking credit for that, mind you, but I think it's because they, they stumbled upon this through the idea of this brief that led them to this marriage of the two which now links those two families together in a way that wasn't before. So this gets back to my earlier point about, you know, does a watch need to exist? And in this case, this watch provided a value that didn't exist before and ultimately set them on a path around how to evolve the design language of a really important watch from the Pioneer uh, through collaboration. So that's something that I'm I'm still incredibly humbled and proud of, that that, that watch, you know, the, the C2 ended up leading uh, leading them down that path and took us into a different area of the business where we realized that what's possible in collaboration is so much more than what had occurred to us when we first talked to Tudor well before Collective years earlier. And also bringing fresh eyes enabled Moser to see something that they couldn't before. Yeah. And you know what? Like kudos to them too for having the open-mindedness and the willingness to take those risks. That's, that's not a given. Yeah. Well, they are known to take risks. We have seen their advertising and marketing <laughs> strategy for the past half decade. Uh, and funnily enough, we had Edward from Moser on the day of release of the Streamliner. That was a bit of a coup for us. We managed to get him on and met him a number of times, met his brother over at Horology Forum 8 in New York, where you weren't there. But I did meet the, the absent person from today. Now, Gabe got to do that. He had the fun time and I was staying home with the two kids. So, um, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you're a good father figure. Let's put oh, it that thank way. thank you. On to watch four. So uh, we took a hard uh, a hard turn, if you will, after Moser and led the, uh, and we worked with um, truly two people who I idolize. Um, I, I alluded to this earlier, but we worked with Martin and Felix, um, the two gents behind Urwork. And Urwork is a brand that I, I, I did not understand the first time I saw 
10 years ago. I just, I couldn't, I could not wrap my head around it. And over the course of the decade, um, more, I just became more and more curious and obsessed with them. You know, they make the watches that they want to make. They don't make the watches that they think you want. And I don't mean that in, in an aggressive way. I just mean they are make, they are following their artistic calling and their technical calling, and they're telling really special and unusual stories through their watches. And you know, for a long time, it was always something that I couldn't afford, um, you know, up until the UR100, where it got just to that price point where it's like you could imagine, you know, selling off half of your collection, you know, and then saving up a little bit more and then getting to the watch. And it, it, it became, in the context of her work, at least significantly more accessible, certainly more so than a six figure watch. Um, and we got introduced to them by a mutual friend in 2019. Um, and they were, you know, they were they were warm, I would say, but they weren't. Wasn't, it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we were going to do this. So Gabe and I uh, spent a good amount of time really trying to figure out what it, what it was that we could do with them. And uh, I'm looking, uh, I'm in my office right now, and I'm looking at the bookshelf. And on the bookshelf uh, here, I have a book of, uh, uh, it's a style guide for NASA, for the original Worm logo. And there's a picture in the style guide of the space shuttle Enterprise. And I remember looking at that and thinking, huh. We started talking to Gabe. I started, Gabe and I started going back and forth. And we were like, you know, let's, let's figure something out. What would happen? How much could it possibly cost, just for giggles, if we were to launch a watch into space and then have a, and then the complication on the watch was able to tell you when it was directly overhead? So believe it or not, you actually can call SpaceX and ask them um, how much it would cost to launch a payload into space. And it was both um, significantly more than I can afford and a lot less than you would think to launch something into space. It's about a million dollars. So we brought that idea to Martin and Felix. We're like, we don't have a million dollars but what do you think about this and literally you could see both of them go oh yeah yeah that's cool um we didn't do this by the way <laughs> oh no i was actually gonna ask you i mean if it's a million dollars to send something into space and have it return to send dave into space on a one-way ticket is that cheaper well it'll just put him in lower earth orbit if he wants to actually check out the mars timer it's probably a little bit more expensive but uh you know it, yeah I, i'm sorry but if you want to crowdfund a million bucks yeah you could probably jam him into a capsule and rocking him off uh in space, but um, I don't know about the re-entry thing. Yeah, let your mind run on that one. Anyway, long story short, that didn't happen. But we, through a fairly circuitous path, ended up partnering with a museum in our hometown in New York City called the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum, which has the Space Shuttle Enterprise. And we ended up um, partnering with them to create a watch that was a tribute to that space shuttle and ended up making a watch where the lateral indices on the UR100, which normally track a, ra a rather esoteric uh, collection of uh, information, the, the velocity of the Earth through space and its rotational speed, we adjusted that with Martin um, and a beautiful design that he made to track the process of takeoff and landing for the original space shuttle. And um, so if you're wearing the watch, the lateral indice at what would be traditionally 10 o'clock takes you through everything from countdown to uh, leaving the atmosphere and entering low Earth orbit. And then at what would be traditionally two o'clock is re-entry back down to Earth. Um, and uh, that watch to this day is not only one of my personal favorite watches, but probably one of the, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of that we've done with Collective. It's a very special. We were able to donate um, a significant amount of the proceeds to the museum in the middle of the pandemic, which, you know, this is a museum that both Gabe and I grew up with and you know, it means a lot to us and, and it, being able to donate that was was really important. Um, and ultimately to create a watch that, again, we felt did something that that the rest of the catalog from Urwick didn't and had a reason to exist. And was this the watch that kind of introduced you guys to us? I, I believe so. You, I remember Gabe telling me, because I listen to you guys all the time, and, and I remember Gabe telling me, um, you know, to like excitedly like tune in tune in 
and sent me like a screenshot of the of the of the link and you guys were talking about it and I, it was like it just honestly I, I was i was so excited because i'm always like surprised that anybody gives a shit about this stuff to be honest with you so like when when you guys when you guys are talking about it i was like ah, that's amazing and that was right in the middle of of us um of us looking to you know to uh just me to put the watch on sale so it was you know it was a really important moment for us um but yeah that's that that was i think the first time you you had uh that we had landed on your radar as it were i think so and i believe after that one of the listeners or more than one of the listeners actually picked one of the watches up yes they did they did indeed so thank you and congratulations mm-hmm. to that listener you know who you are yes and send me a wrist shot and i will make sure to include it with your name or without your name depending how you feel about that. We managed to speak to Felix uh, or work over in Dubai Watch Week last year. Got a very short interview with him because he was super busy. But brilliant guy. The designs, even at Geneva Watch Days, which was only just around about a month ago there, I got to sit with him and have a look at the purples and the golds and all these things. Even the the design. I don't think I did. Ah, man, that watch. That watch is uh, is so fucking cool. Yeah, that's definitely on my hit list. I mean, I've got my Mad One Red Edition, yeah. which is nice, but it's not quite in the same stratosphere as the Orwork series. But one day, one day, like you say, if I decide to take a lot of my collection and pare it down and move forward, that definitely could be in my lower Earth orbit. You won't regret it. I truly wear that watch, I don't know, two or three times a week. I love it. You won't regret it. The way I look at it is you only live once. Yes, well, uh, exactly. So from <laughs> our work, where did things take you from there? And that left, that brought us to our most uh, most recent release before this, this upcoming one, which was with IWC. Uh, a brand that uh, both Gabe and I absolutely adore. We we are IWC fanboys. We wear a lot of IWC, and uh, we wanted to create a watch that was a tribute to the era of IWC that we both love the most, which is the Gunter Bloom line, the years, uh, the late '90s. Gabe, in particular, is a 3706 um, chronograph, so it's a 39 millimeter um, Pilot's Chrono, and he's madly in love with that watch. And uh, the watch that we made, the C3 was uh, a tip of the hat, if you will, to that particular watch, um, including one of my favorite elements, which was uh, the fact that a lot of those watches, those 3706s, et cetera, the day wheel, you found, you know, you'd find them in German or French or Italian. You didn't really find a whole bunch in, in English. So we were able to to get IWC to do something they haven't done in a fair amount of time, which is uh, to put a German day wheel back on the watch. And it's a very, it's a very you know, simple and refined design, matte black dial, gray numerals, um, open case back with a uh, rotor that matches the dial color, that specific uh, uh, German day wheel. And it's it's one of those watches that, um, you know, over the, year, uh, over the years, I've, I've become um, friends with uh, Stephen Pulverant. And it's one of those watches where, where we showed it to Stephen. He was like, don't they make this already? And we're like, no. But that's almost the feeling that, that we wanted people to have. It's just like, isn't this a watch that exists? And the answer is, it it isn't. It should have. Um, well, and it's interesting because we, uh, collective, we also sell pre-owned uh, collective watches. If a member ever wants to sell it, we're happy to buy it. Um, and, I'm, and that watch in particular, we've resold more than any other watch, which I think speaks to the community of people out there that are excited about that particular design, you know, and and the attraction of of IWC doing what it was originally meant to do, which is just be like uh, just a, a serious tool watch and to and to look the part, you know. Um, and uh, I would argue the C three looks looks kind of mean in that way. Um, and if you're attracted to that kind of you know, sim- uh, reductive, you know, no nonsense IWC. Like this is a watch that 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 might that you might be attracted to. And that one came out just around about a year ago, didn't it? Almost exactly a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, that was around about the time where we were doing a hell of a lot with IWC. They'd started the roadshow. They'd come mm-hmm. to Edinburgh. 
and it was situated on a street facing the castle, which was fantastic. They did it again this year, and we got to go across, check out everything they were doing, including the ceramics, the deserts, all those great things. And we had the man himself, the CEO, who used to design things and be an architect, who's now the architect behind the business itself. We had Chris on the show, and that was one of our favourite shows of recording, because he's so forward-thinking. When you think of Kurt Klaus and IWC of the past, the chronograph, the perpetuals and things, it's a very heritage and steeped business. But you've got somebody like Chris at the helm just now and it just pulls everything together. So they're doing fantastic things, great laugh, great fun and that was a great release for you guys. Now we're kind of up to modern day. Why is it you're here today? You've come on to the the chat show to talk about your new book or movie. What is it you're trying to hawk today? Well, I can't tell you uh, how excited I am because uh, you may be familiar with the fact that uh, the industry has had a little bit of supply chain challenge and that has pushed back some of the releases that we've had. So, you know, we we are a little bit more delayed uh, with this release than I think, you know, our normal cadence would be. So we could not be more excited to announce the next watch in our portfolio series, the P3, which is in partnership with a manufacturer that I am madly in love with. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you're a bit of a fan as well, which is Armstrong. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, Armstrong to us represents so much of what we love about independent watchmaking. It is that combination of having a distinct aesthetic point of view, a real commitment to interesting technical innovation, and is run by two genuinely lovely human beings who want to do good work and want to make interesting watches. And that alchemy, those three elements, it's so rare to find that in one place. And, um, you know, I, I gave you an example early on of what it what it looks like when it doesn't work. But I remember the first phone call that we had with Surgeon Claude and it was like, snap, just like instantly, just, yep, this is going to work. And uh, we, we just, we clicked right in and... Um, you know, it was it was smooth sailing from day one as we found the creative territory that was going to work for this watch and ultimately all the way through through production. And and the moment where, um, you know, I, I finally got to see the, the final prototype, which arrived in an email. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but it arrived in an email from Claude, who's the head watchmaker. And it was one sentence, which was just this watch is fucking excellent, <laughs> which is like not not necessarily a thing that you generally get when you're hearing from the head of design you know, of, from a Swiss of a, company. No, but uh, it, it not only speaks to how awesome Claude is, but frankly, uh, I think how, how much pride we all have in, in this fairly distinct uh, watch that we've created together. Well, our story with Armin Strom goes back a number of years. First of all, we did have them on the show for their origin tale, where they explained who Armin Strom was in real life and how the business has developed past that gentleman into where it is today. Yeah. We have massive ties with the folks at Arage and Marcella, who works or worked for Arage, did work for Armin Strom and works between the two of them. She had a hand in designing the Turbion 1 that I ended up with. And Armstrong were the guys that had the machinery and the know-how behind the scenes to put it all together and take it from figment of imagination into fact. And then me and Dave turned up unannounced. Just a few months ago, we were overseeing the folks at Arage. We were in the hotel that is directly across from Armstrong's facility. And it's not separate individual entities, office, design space, sales room, manufacturing. It's all in the one place. Yeah. And it's as if you went into a primary school and asked a five-year-old kid, draw me a factory of how 
a watch is designed and it's like room one, draw pictures, room two, 3D print, room four, cut the metal, room five, metal plate, da 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 da, all the way through start to finish. It is insane how this is done. Yeah, how cool is that? It just makes sense. It really does. And we turned up, they were busy folks, but they took the time, they spent well over an hour and a half walking me and Dave through every single process, right the way down to where the metal comes in as a pole on one side, a big metal rod, and out comes the parts on the other side. I even got a little uh, souvenir keepsake of one of the, I think it's the resonance arms or something like that, one of the little balance things. So brilliant people, always had a lot of time for us, even though we're just a couple of daft Scottish people. I mean, I didn't see what you guys were working on, they kept that hidden, but they showed me things that are coming out next year. That's how much faith and trust they have in people, and not a bad word to say about them. Pietro at Limited Edition did the intro for us over a year ago. If anyone wants to do a collaborative watch with somebody that's a decent person at a decent company, then those two gentlemen are the ones to speak to. So I am really looking forward to when this one comes out. Well, And big shout out to Pietro for being a champion of them. I uh, The Armstrong that I purchased, um, obviously my next Armstrong is the one that we made, but the first one I bought, I bought from Pietro. And, um, you know, he, I think, not only has an incredible eye for phenomenal human beings and watches, but he, he also leaned in very heavily and I know was a longtime supporter of them. So a hat tip to, to him for that in particular. A couple of things for listeners to do once this episode finishes. One, go and have a look at our YouTube channel. Yes, it's a little bit dusty because we don't have the time to make new content there because two shows a week in audio is long enough for me. But there is some videos with Pietro from Limited Edition and there's at least one Armstrong video where you get to see these watches in micro magnification and you will be astounded at the quality for the price and if you've got time after that go and listen to our episode with the guys because we're going to be having them on again soon so i think uh, you really took the words out of my mouth there in terms of you know quality for price but i think what's exciting about this watch too is that well it's based off of one of uh, my favorite models that they make the gravity equal force it pulls its aesthetic inspiration from uh, technical gear and creates this really fascinating, I think, tension, you know, when you think about a Haute Horology watch in the sense that there's it, there's all of this incredible technology, aesthetics and finishing that go into making this the high end watch that it is. But that pull, but that's also being pulled in the other direction by the design prompt, which is technical gear. Um, during the pandemic, both Gabe and I, uh, as so many other people, I think, found you know, other uh, other passions to become obsessed with because there was absolutely nothing to do. And one of the things that I stumbled into was uh, living here in Southern California and being outdoors a lot uh, were pocket knives. And um, in particular, uh, actually not the knife part, but the scales, the sides of the pocket knives, which are in some cases and by some makers uh, milled to an extraordinarily high level of detail and are extremely beautiful. You know, I'll give uh, one of my favorites is, a, is an American knife maker um, name uh, that, that makes watches under the name Holt Blade Works and a Danish watchmaker or knife maker um, called Anso of Denmark, both of, which are, both of which are just absolutely beautiful, beautiful knives that um, have a ton of motion and fluidity built into them. We gave those as prompts to Claude, and that actually is what inspired a lot of the design. Um, not Again, not the knife, but the scales. And one of the, there's several things that are fascinating to me about this watch, but one of them, one of the things that I really love that Claude did is he redesigned the movement for this watch. So if, um, if your listeners are unfamiliar with it, I would encourage them to go Google just any version of the Gravity Equal Force and you'll see. Or play along at home and look at the show notes. I forgot to say that at the beginning. Sorry, I'm driving traffic away from Scottish watches. My apologies. But um, so you've got the three bridges and these three bridges have been redesigned by Claude to uh, reference um, some of these knife clips. And as a result, they have a degree of three dimensionality and milling 
that is a little bit of a hat tip um, for anyone who's uh, at all ever looked at a mid-tech or a custom knife. You're going to recognize that that flow. Similarly, the base plate, um, still made by Comblemine, so it's coming out of Kari's factory, but it has almost a frag pattern matte black finish. And that's against a green dial that also has something which is highly unusual for Armenstrom, which are applied luminous indices. And all of this is in an entirely new case material, which is titanium, uh, which is uh, in order to lower the weight of the watch. While it's not a sports watch, the goal is that if somebody is an active individual, this is a watch that can fit into their lifestyle. And even and even goes so far as to reduce the weight as much as possible by milling out all of the bridges on the case back. So it is, in essence... Um, a new caliber specific to this watch in a new case material with an entirely refreshed design. So it's a very distinct take, but uh, as we've mentioned before, there's no mistaking this watch for anything but a gravity equal force. It's just a completely unique take on that that Claude was able to bring to life by exploring that creative territory. It's like taking a Bentley, which is already exceptional, and then taking it to their in-house, in-house design team and just turning it up to 11. Yeah. But you see, but that's that's what's fun about a guy like Claude, because you can bring him a creative prompt and he'll say, you know, we were just talking to another another uh, the manufacturer that we're a huge fan of for a watch that's going to come in about a year and a half. And, you know, similar to Claude, they were like, we don't know if we can do this, but if you like the design, we're going to figure it out, which is highly unusual to find. And when you do find that, I think not only is it something that makes me proud to, to work with that that particular maker, it's one that I think will bring a watch to market that is like it or like it or hate it is distinct. It sounds to me as if these are fantastic watches, but to actually get your hands on them, you have to be part of a group. Uh -huh. How would one become a part of said group? Sure. So we've we have gone through so many iterations of this over the last few years and all of it has basically revolved around wanting to make sure that when we bring people into the collective community, that they're folks that are going to be pleasant and curious and bring diverse perspectives. And we've tried a lot of different ways. And, and most of those have revolved around this idea of an application. You know, and early on, you know, the application was, to be completely honest, kind of onerous. It was like five questions. And we realized, you know, over time, we would sort of shorten the application with each release. What we realized is that the vast majority of people who were applying to join Collective are awesome people that we would love to have in Collective. And where we approached it in the beginning, which is like, well, we should have a gate to really figure it out. The, the truth is like 95% of people who apply are wonderful. So what we've really done is we've adjusted the process now um, really just to make sure that when somebody's joining, that they're joining with the right intention and that we're not putting a ton of pressure on them. Because we've also learned that people like to participate in communities in different ways. Not everybody is going to be in the group talking every day. Some of, our some of our most active members only come to physical events, only connect with Collective members outside of the group. And that's that's fine. That's great. We don't mind. So we've had to educate ourselves about the best way to do it. So to answer your question, if you are excited by this watch and you are curious about and, and interested in joining Collective, uh, once the watch releases, uh, and I believe by the time we're, uh, you're hearing this, the watch should be out, all you have to do is go to collectivehorology.com. Right there on the homepage, there's going to be one question. That question is going to ask you about who you are and, and why you love watches. We just want to get to know you. You're going to look at our house rules. We have about 10 basic rules um, about being a member of Collective that we have that we do enforce, but happily have only ever had to once in four years. Um, and then once you submit that, you will hear back from us that same day um, with uh, ideally a link to purchase uh, once we've reviewed it. And it just goes through a standard like fraud review. Um, and things like that before we respond. So it's not like you're going to send an email into a void and cross your fingers and hope something comes back. You're going to know that day, usually within the hour um, from us. 
And to be clear, it's never been about the scale of collection or the size of what you collect or the brands that you collect or any of that. What we're looking for are curious, interesting people that want to meet other curious, interesting people who are excited about the idea of being part of a community that's foundation or collaborative watches. Brilliant. And are there any stipulations for membership? Is there an annual fee, a drawing fee? Do they have to purchase a watch every year? Is there anything like that? Yeah. So we don't we don't have membership dues or fees. And once you join Collective, you're in. Um we the one thing that everybody has had to do is purchase a watch from Collective. And that goes back to the the original point earlier of uh, that is how we are able to have the capital to do this and to be able to build these watches. Um, but once you are a member of Collective, you will always have first shot for you have a full week of exclusivity to decide if you want to buy the next release that we make before we open it up to new members to join. We don't believe in the idea of the midnight drop. So, you know, if you're a Collective member, you can feel confident that if a watch comes out, you can think about it. You can ask questions. You can discuss it in the group. You've got that seven days to decide. And we always let members know in advance, maybe not what the design of the watch is, because that can always you know, have subtle tweaks, as you're well aware. But we do let them know what's coming, the total number of watches we're making, the price point of that watch, and when it's going to go on sale so that they can at least prepare and think, oh, that's actually, I've been curious about Armin Strom. You know, maybe I should, maybe I should see what this is. And if I like it, I'll go for it. And if I don't, no harm, no foul. But at least I, I, w- I wasn't going to be surprised, you know, by buying a Gravity Equal Force on Thursday and finding out that collective is releasing one on friday good point and apart from having the ability to get dibs on amazing timepieces that other people <laughs> can't what are the benefits what do people do within collective do you have physical events do you have online events how do people communicate is there a forum is it a facebook group yeah so we do all of those things um from a digital standpoint there is a uh, there is a closed group it's we run it off of facebook because to be honest it's the best platform that we found for this you could debate that left right and center but ultimately it's it's i think been the common denominator we do physical events as well, both as get-togethers and with brands. I'll jump in and say I agree because Scottish Watches has got a Facebook group and we've had it probably since we launched the podcast. There's probably over 2,000 people in there and it's very, very active. It takes a lot of time each day to go through all the posts. There's people that do continual yeah. wrist checks every single day. There's a new watch on the, the wrist of, for instance, Richard from Australia and loads of other folks. So yeah, Facebook is the easiest platform to use for that. Oh yeah, we actually, side note, we have an amazingly lovely member who has been for the last uh, couple of the day be doing a watch of the day slash sock of the day challenge where all of his watches match his socks which is awesome so you know who you are shout out to you um we also offer a number of benefits that we don't advertise but that we're really proud of we're major supporters of the horological society of new york for example um we donate a significant amount of our revenue to them every year and everyone who becomes a member of uh, collective automatically is grant is gifted a membership to the hsny um and we have a number of other soft benefits that um that we share with members but that follow that 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 guideline so our goal is that being a member of Collective isn't just about getting a watch. It's about making new friends. It's about meeting new people. And it's about having access to other communities that we want to support too, because we firmly believe that it's our responsibility not just to make watches for members, but to also help grow that community of up-and-coming watchmakers that are going to give us the pathway and the runway to make awesome new watches. And that's exactly what HSNY does in particular. Fantastic. Well, there you go. We've managed to cover your history, the Collective's history, the watches you've had out so far. The new one that is just released as you're hearing this episode and how easy it is to join and become a part of that community and just some of the fringe benefits that maybe people don't know about. So I really appreciate the time. Sorry it's taken so long to get you on. It has been a whirlwind the last year, 18 months. I know you guys have been busy. We've been busy as well. But next time you stop off in Europe or the UK, be sure to let us know and we will catch up in real life. I would love that. And for folks that want to find out more, how do they get in touch? What's the website URL? Sure. It's 
collectivehorology.com. So that's C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-H-O-R-O-L-O-G-Y.com. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, and I would say uh, if you are interested in any release, even if this one doesn't strike your fancy, um, sign up for our list. We don't abuse it. We'll only ever hit you when there's a new watch that's coming out. Um, but we always give our prospective members, so folks who are interested in us, a heads up before the general public. So if uh, you like what we're doing, um, by all means, uh, give us a follow and sign up and, and uh, we'll do our best to to keep you entertained with that. And if you want to follow us on Instagram at Scottish Watches, our website is scottishwatches.co.uk. Funnily enough, emails in at scottishwatches.co.uk and be sure to tune in Mondays and Thursdays our new shows come out on Monday where we talk about new releases generally have a laugh and Thursday is when we convince somebody that it's a good idea to speak to us for an hour on the line thank you so much for having me this was a lot of fun we will have you back probably around about the next time you've got something to talk about Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes indeed but that is us thank you for listening and we will catch you guys again soon thank you 